This podcast is for investment professionals only. The information and views expressed, including any reference to specific investments, does not constitute investment advice, nor should it be treated as a recommendation for any investment. Past performance is not a guide to future performance, and the value of an investment may fall as well as rise. Welcome to Taking Stock, hosted by Finley Park. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Anthony Kingsley, the CIO of Finley Park, and I'm joined here today by colleague and partner John Tredgett. Today, John and I will explore the factors that have forced a pivot towards a more deglobalized world. And it's a topic that seems to have been in discussion a lot recently with the team here, with our clients, and in the industry in general. And today we'll focus on where America is positioned within this new environment, the advantages it has, such as energy independence and government incentives. But we'll also take a look at which companies and industries might benefit from these new domestic opportunities. So, John, welcome. Thank you. John, share a few thoughts, if you would, about how we got to this point. So in the last 60 to 70 years, one of the largest forces globally has been globalization, and that is political and economic closer integration and interdependence amongst countries. And there's been lots of signs like this. If you look at signs of economic integration, you know, the Maastricht Treaty was signed in 1992, closer integration within Europe. NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement signed between Canada, the US, and Mexico in 1994. The WTO was created. China entered the WTO in 2001. And politically, you've also seen regional trading blocks created. So the move has been towards tighter economic and political integration. And this has been expressed by a higher percentage of global trade as a percentage of GDP. And this moves in waves. If you look at the end of the World War II, after a period of deglobalization, after two world wars, global trade fell to about 7% of global GDP, whereas Up to about 10 to 15 years ago, that had risen during this period of globalization up to almost 50% of global GDP. But things have changed. So how have things changed there? Talk a little bit about some of the forces over the last decade. Well, it seems we've maybe reached some of the limits of political and economic integration, effectively. The forces of deglobalization have actually been bubbling for over a decade You saw movements like Occupy Wall Street and the Occupy movement more broadly. You saw the election of leaders that were promoting more protectionist policies like Donald Trump, examples like Brexit, which are starting to unwind some of this economic and political integration that was flourishing during the period of globalization. So you've certainly seen strengthening deglobalization forces, and those have accelerated materially in the last four to five years. With COVID, you saw chaos in global supply chains. You then had Russia invading Ukraine, and you've had rising tensions between the US and China. Relying on a foreign adversary today for semiconductors or vaccines or energy or food is considered to be an economic and a national security risk. So- this is what's been driving these forces of deglobalization. So, John, in the context of a deglobalizing world, how is America positioned relative to perhaps other countries? I think America is positioned well on a relative basis. 
for a more deglobalized environment for a few reasons. The US is energy independent, which is pretty important, and it has lower energy costs than many other parts of the world. And if there is going to be more domestic economic activity, having cheaper sources of energy is pretty important. It's also the largest food exporter in the world. The economy is very diversified. So if you think about, we talked about these cycles of global trade as a percentage of GDP going up and down. If that continues to drift lower, only about 10% of the US GDP comes from exports. It has an educated workforce, rule of law and property rights, and very deep capital markets, all the way from angel investors and venture capitals up to the public capital markets where we participate. John, that's a good point that you make about energy and the security of supply of oil and gas that you have coming from the United States. And it'll be interesting to see how much of a difference that makes when companies make decisions about where to build their next factory. But in that context, John, perhaps share some thoughts on what the government is doing to incentivize a domestic production and spend. So the government has put in place a selection of legislation which is going to incentivize domestic production. For example, the $51 billion Chips and Sciences Act, the $390 billion Inflation Reduction Act, and then the largest of all of them, the $1.2 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which is considered to be the largest piece of infrastructure investment in the US since the Lyndon Johnson administration. So these incentives are across a whole range of different sectors, but they are particularly focused on industries that are deemed strategic to the US's economic and military strength, areas like semiconductors, biologics, battery technology. But clearly, we are going to see an upgrade of infrastructure and more industrial activity going on within the US's borders. And you're seeing a strengthening of buy American laws. And the other point I would make is that this is bipartisan, you know, in what is considered to be a very fractious political environment within the US. This is something that both parties agree on. And it's one of the reasons why we're seeing so much progress there. And we're already seeing evidence of this with some very large domestic capital expenditure announcements from global companies, including Intel, TSMC, Samsung, that are spending over $100 billion on building semiconductor manufacturing plants in the US. You mentioned semiconductor there, John. Of course, in the portfolio, we've held Texas Instruments for a long time. How are they taking advantage of some of this US legislation? So Texas Instruments is an interesting one because it's a very global company, but a lot of its plant property and equipment and its manufacturing footprint are based in the United States. And inside the Chips and Sciences Act, there are investment tax credits where Texas Instruments will get back 25% for every dollar of CapEx they spend in the United States. For them, is very significant. They're spending about $15 billion over the next three to five years, and they're going to get about $3 billion back in cash from the federal government. And John, the Inflation Reduction Act included some legislation to encourage companies to invest in America in decarbonization projects. That's absolutely right. The IRA legislation increased the tax credit available for companies that sequester carbon, that do carbon capture and sequester carbon underground. And the industrial gas companies, companies like Air Products, will benefit from this. Air Products has a very large project in Louisiana, for example, that was announced before the IRA legislation, but we'll see an increased return due to the benefits of getting a higher tax rebate from the government 
for the carbon that they're going to be sequestering. So is that going to encourage additional projects in this area? Absolutely. And it certainly makes the US going from being a laggard or viewed as a laggard in the energy transition and the efforts to decarbonize to a leader. And we've heard that from multiple sources. We heard some comments from some of the railroad CEOs saying they're really starting to see more industrial activity, the likes of which they hadn't seen for a while and having potentially a positive impact on their business. Share a few thoughts around that, if you would. Yeah, the railroads we'd view as somewhat sector agnostic or project agnostic beneficiaries from deglobalization, provided there is more onshoring and more manufacturing and infrastructure activity going on within the US and within North America, the railroads will benefit because we're going to need more cement, aggregates, lumber, steel, and it'll all need to be moved around for these project activities. So the likes of Union Pacific, Berkshire Hathaway, which owns BNSF, these stand to benefit from some of those trends? Absolutely. And if you're a company like Berkshire Hathaway, not only will you benefit potentially from moving more materials around the US on the railroad, Berkshire Hathaway has the benefit of also owning a bunch of utilities that will benefit from the investment and production tax credits for cleaner energy in the US at their utilities. So John, Texas Instruments, Berkshire Hathaway, these are global multinational companies, air products too. What about domestic opportunities for companies to benefit from these trends? I think there's many. What's really interesting, project agnostic beneficiaries. So as long as there is more industrial or infrastructure activity within the US, companies that'll benefit. Examples would be maybe companies like Martin Marietta, the aggregates company. So provided there's more infrastructure building going on in the US. Companies like Granger, the US's largest industrial distributor, or even Ferguson, where half of their business is non-residential distribution. These types of picks and shovel businesses will benefit provided there is more aggregate activity, manufacturing and industrial within the borders. John, that's an interesting point. As you look out, do you think we're going to see more of that in America? I think we are seeing that. And inherently, companies that are more domestic often are also smaller or mid-cap companies that might not have built out their supply chains globally as much larger companies. I think in the next decade, it's possible if we continue to see these trends we're seeing, we'll see many more investment opportunities down the market cap curve and in more domestic focused companies. If you think about the forces that are driving you know, the incentivizing of production within US borders, the benefits in terms of a deglobalized world of the US and being energy independent and some of the other things we talked about. If you look at what's happened to the industrial sector, as you point out, it has shrunk dramatically. If you look at where it was 30 years ago, industrials were about 17% of GDP. Today, they're 11. They were about 16% of US employment. Now they're eight. And they were 13% of the market capitalization of the S&P 500. And they're now eight. So if these trends continue to take hold, you could see a major change as we look forward to the next decade. And as you say, 13% of the S&P down to eight, it would be very interesting to see over the next five to 10 years where that goes. But directionally, it sounds like with all the incentives, with all the onshoring of supply chains, with all the investment, that could be higher and perhaps materially. I agree. John, this has been terrific. It's been great having this discussion with you. I think it's a topic which is incredibly relevant. It's one that 
we are thinking about a lot, our clients are asking about a lot. And I think it's a topic that is going to be hugely relevant front and center for the foreseeable future. Well, thanks for listening. And as ever, we look forward to your feedback. Thanks for listening.